0: Hi, friends, and welcome to the Decision Intelligence podcast with Cassie Kozrikov. Here's Introduction to Decision Intelligence, a new discipline for leadership in the AI era. Read for you by the author. Curious to know what the psychology of avoiding lines on the savannah has in common with responsible AI leadership and the challenges of designing data warehouses? Welcome to Decision Intelligence. Decision intelligence is a new academic discipline concerned with all aspects of selecting between options. It brings together the best of applied data science, social science and managerial science into a unified field that helps people use data to improve their lives, their businesses and the world around them. It's a vital science for the AI era, covering the skills needed to lead AI projects responsibly and design objectives, metrics and safety nets for automation at scale. You can think of decision intelligence as the discipline of turning information into better action at any scale. In this article, we'll take a tour of its basic terminology and concepts. The online version of this article is full of links and helpful resources, so if you find yourself curious about any of the topics, head over to the online version and use that as a springboard for choosing your own adventure and learning more about the ideas. So let's dive right in. What's a decision? Data are beautiful, but it's decisions that are important. It's through our decisions, our actions, that we affect the world around us. We define the word decision to mean any selection between options by any entity. So the conversation here is broader than MBA style dilemmas like, should I open a branch of my business in London? In this terminology, labeling a photo as cat versus not cat is a decision executed by a computer system, while figuring out whether to launch that system in the first place is a decision taken thoughtfully by the human leader in charge of the project. Or at least, we hope it's taken thoughtfully. What's decision-making? Decision-making is a term that's used differently by different disciplines, but it usually refers to one of two things. One, taking an action where there were alternative options. In this sense, it's possible to talk about decision-making by a lizard or even a computer. Two, performing the function of a human decision-maker, part of which is taking responsibility for decisions. Even though a computer system can execute a decision, it will not be called a decision-maker because it does not bear responsibility for its outputs. That responsibility rests squarely on the shoulders of the humans who created it. Decision Intelligence Taxonomy. One way to approach learning about decision intelligence is to break it along traditional lines into its quantitative aspects largely overlapping with applied data science, and qualitative aspects, developed primarily by researchers in the social and managerial sciences. Qualitative side. The decision sciences. The disciplines making up the qualitative side have traditionally been referred to as the decision sciences, which I'd have loved for the whole thing to be called. But alas, we can't always have what we want. The decision sciences concern themselves with questions like, how should you set up decision criteria and design your metrics? That one's in all of them. But here are some more specialized questions. From economics, is your chosen metric incentive compatible? From decision analysis, what quality should you make this decision at, and how much should you pay for perfect information? From psychology, how do emotions, heuristics, and biases play into decision making? From neuroeconomics, how do biological factors like cortisol levels affect decision making? From behavioral economics, how does changing the presentation of information influence choice behavior? From experimental game theory, how do you optimize your outcomes when making decisions in a group context? From design, how do you balance numerous constraints and multi-stage objectives in designing the decision context? From user experience research, who will experience the consequences of the decision, and how will various groups perceive that experience? And of course, from philosophy, is the decision objective ethical? This is just a small taste. There are many more. This is also far from the complete list of disciplines involved. Think of decision science as dealing with decision setup and information processing in its fuzzier storage form, the human brain, rather than the kind that's neatly written down in semi-permanent storage, which we call data. The trouble with your brain. In the previous century, it was fashionable to praise anyone who stuffed a fat wad of math into some unsuspecting human endeavor. Taking a quantitative approach is usually better than thoughtless chaos, there's a way to do even better. Strategies based on pure mathematical rationality, without a quantitative understanding of decision-making and human behavior, can be pretty naive, and they tend to underperform relative to those based on joint mastery of the quantitative and qualitative sides. Stay tuned for blog posts on the history of rationality in the social sciences, as well as examples from behavioral game theory, where psychology beats mathematics. Humans are not optimizers, we're satisficers, which is a fancy word for corner cutters who are satisfied with good enough as opposed to perfect. It's also a concept that was enough of a shocker to our species' arrogance, a punch in the face of rational man who's godlike and flawless, that it was worth a Nobel Prize. In reality, we humans all use cognitive heuristics to save time and effort. That's often a good thing. Working out the perfect running path to get away from a lion on the savannah would get us eaten before we've barely started the calculation. Satisficing also reduces the calorie cost of living, which is just as well, since our brains are ridiculously power-hungry devices as it is, gobbling up around a fifth of our energy expenditure despite weighing approximately three pounds. I bet you weigh more than 15 pounds total, right? Now that most of us don't spend our days running away from lions, some of the corners we cut lead to predictably rubbish outcomes. Our brains aren't exactly, uh, optimized for the modern environment. Understanding the manner in which our species turns information into action allows you to use decision processes to protect yourself from the shortcomings of your own brain, as well as from those people who intentionally prey on your instincts. It also helps you build tools that augment your performance and adapt your environment to your brain if the poor thing is remarkably slow to catch up a la Darwin. By the way, if you think AI takes the human out of the equation, think again. All technology is a reflection of its creators, and systems that operate at scale can amplify human shortcomings, which is one reason why developing decision intelligence skills is so necessary for responsible AI leadership. You can learn more in my articles, What is AI Bias? and Pay attention to that man behind the curtain. But what if you're not making a decision? Sometimes thinking through your decision criteria carefully leads you to realize that there is no fact in the world that would change your mind. You've selected your action already and now you're just looking for a way to feel better about it. That's a useful realization. It stops you from wasting more time and helps you redirect your emotional discomfort while doing what you were going to do anyway, data be damned. If you find yourself looking at data after you've already made the decision, then this quote from Andrew Lang applies to you. Uses statistics as a drunken man uses lampposts. For support rather than illumination. Don't let that be you. Unless you would take different actions in response to different, still unknown facts, there's no decision here. Though sometimes training in decision analysis helps you see those situations more clearly. Next up, decision-making under perfect information. Now imagine that you've dealt very carefully with setting up a decision that is sensitive to the facts, and you can snap your fingers to see the factual information you need for executing your decision. What do you need data science for? (laughs) Nothing, that's what. There is never anything better than a fact, something that you know with certainty. So we always prefer to make decisions based on facts if we have them. That's why the first order of business should be figuring out how we'd like to deal with facts. Which of the following uses would you like to put your ideal information to? 1. You can use facts to make a single important pre-framed decision. If it's important enough, you'll need to lean heavily on the qualitative side of things to frame your decision wisely. Psychologists know that if you allow yourself to be ambushed by surprise information, it can manipulate you in ways you wouldn't like. So they and others have lots to say about how to approach selecting the information that you'll accept in advance. 2. You can use facts to shore up opinions. I expect it's sunny outside becomes I know it's sunny outside when you have the facts. Three you can use facts to make a single, important existence-based decision. Existence-based decisions are decisions where the existence of a formerly unknown unknown shakes the very foundations of your approach so much that you realize in hindsight that your decision context was sloppily framed. For example, I just found out there exists a case of Ebola right next door, so I'm getting out of here. Never mind all that decision context framing that I did before. I didn't even know that how my world works, allows a situation like that, so I'd better rethink everything. Four, you can use facts to automate a large number of decisions. In traditional programming, a human specifies the set of instructions for converting fact inputs into appropriate actions, possibly involving something like a lookup table. Five, you can use facts to reveal an automation solution. By seeing the facts about the system, you can write code based on them. This is a better approach to traditional programming than coming up with the structure of a solution by thinking hard with no information. For example, if you don't know how to convert Celsius to Fahrenheit, you could use a dataset to look up the entry in Fahrenheit that goes without Celsius input. But if you analyze the lookup table itself, you'll quickly discover the formula that connects them. Then you can just code up that formula, or model, to do your dirty work for you and lose that clunky table. Six you can use facts to generate an optimal solution to an automation problem that's perfectly solvable. This is traditional optimization. You'll find many examples in the field of operations research, which covers, among other things, how to wrangle constraints to get the ideal outcome, such as the best order to complete a series of tasks. For example, how to set up a manufacturing assembly line if you want to get things done as efficiently as possible. Seven. You can use facts to inspire how you'll approach future important decisions. This is part of analytics, which also belongs in the section on partial information below. So hold that thought. Eight, you can use facts to take stock of what you're dealing with. This helps you understand the kind of inputs you have available for future decisions and design how to curate your information better. If you've just inherited a big, dark data warehouse, Full of potential ingredients, you won't know what's inside until someone looks at it. Luckily, your analyst comes equipped with a flashlight and roller plates. 9. You can use facts sloppily to make unframed decisions. This is efficient when decisions have sufficiently low stakes that they don't warrant the effort required to approach them carefully, such as, what should I eat for lunch today? Attempting to be rigorous all the time on all decisions gives suboptimal long-run or lifetime outcomes. And it falls into the category of pointless perfectionism. Save your effort for the situations that are important enough for it. But please don't forget that even if it is efficient to use a low-quality, low-effort approach, the optimal decision approach is still of low quality. In other words, you shouldn't thump your chest or be overconfident when that's your method. If you cut corners, you're holding something flimsy. There are situations where flimsy gets the job done doesn't suddenly make your conclusion sturdy. Don't lean on it. If you want high quality decision making that you can lean on, you need a more rigorous approach. With training in the decision sciences, you learn to reduce the effort that it takes to make rigorous fact-based decisions, which means that the same amount of work now gets you higher quality decision making across the board. This is a very valuable skill, but it takes lots of work to hone it. For example, students of behavioral economics form the habit of setting decision criteria in advance of information. Those of us who took a beating from sufficiently demanding decision science training programs can't help but ask ourselves, for example, what the maximum that we would pay for a ticket is before we look up that price. Data collection and data engineering. If we had the facts, we'd be home already. Alas, we live in the real world and often we must work for our information. Data engineering is a sophisticated discipline centered on making information available reliably at scale. In the way that going to the grocery store for a pint of ice cream is easy, data engineering is easy when all the available relevant information fits in a spreadsheet. Things will get tricky when you start asking for the delivery of 2 million tons of ice cream. And don't let it melt. Things get even trickier when you have to design, set up, and maintain a huge warehouse, and you don't even know what the future will ask you to store next. Maybe it's a few tons of fish, maybe it's plutonium, good luck! While data engineering is a separate, sister discipline to decision intelligence, the decision sciences, the qualitative side, do include a strong tradition of expertise involved in advising the design and curation of fact collection quantitative side. Data science. When you framed your decision and you look up all the facts you need using a search engine or an analyst performing the role of a human search engine for you, all that's left is to execute your decision. You're done. No fancy data science needed. But what if, after all that legwork and engineering jujitsu, the facts delivered are not the facts that you ideally need for your decision? What if they're only partial facts? What if you want tomorrow's facts, but you only have the past to inform you? Isn't it so annoying when we can't remember the future? Perhaps you want to know what all your potential users think of your project, but you can only ask a hundred of them. Then you're dealing with uncertainty. What you know is not what you wish you knew. Enter data science. Naturally, you should expect your approach to change when the facts you have aren't the facts you need. Maybe they're one piece of a much bigger puzzle, as with a sample from a larger population. Maybe they're from the wrong puzzle, but the best you have, as with using the past to predict the future. Data science gets interesting when you're forced to make leaps beyond the data. But do be careful to avoid an Icarus-like splat. So let's see what you can use partial facts for. Here we go. 1. You can use partial facts to make a single, important, pre-framed decision with statistical inference, supplementing the information you have with assumptions to see if you should change your action. This is called frequentist statistics, otherwise known as classical statistics, and it's the kind you would encounter in your STAT101 class. 2. You can use partial facts to reasonably update opinions into more informed, but still imperfect and personal and subjective opinions. This is Bayesian statistics. 3. Your partial facts may turn out to contain facts about existence, which means you could use them in hindsight for existence-based decisions. Think of the Ebola case from earlier. Four, you can use partial facts to automate a large number of decisions. That's traditional programming using something like a lookup table where you convert something you haven't seen before into the closest thing that you have and then proceed as usual. By the way, that's what KNN, K-nearest neighbors, does in a nutshell. And it usually works better when that nutshell has more things in it. Five, you can use partial facts to inspire an automation solution. By seeing the partial facts about the system, you can still write code based on what you're seeing. This is analytics. 6. You can use partial facts to generate a decent solution to an imperfectly solvable automation problem so you don't have to come up with that solution by hand yourself. This is machine learning and AI. 7. You can use partial facts to inspire how you'll approach future important decisions. This is analytics. Eight. You can use partial facts for understanding what you're dealing with in your data and accelerate the development of an automation solution with advanced analytics. For example, by inspiring new methods to try on an AI project or new ways to blend together information to make useful model inputs. The jargon for this last bit is feature engineering. Nine. You can use partial facts sloppily to make unframed decisions, but be aware that the quality is even lower than when you use facts sloppily because what you actually know is now one step removed from what you wish you knew. For all these uses, there are ways to integrate wisdom from a variety of previously siloed disciplines to approach decision-making more effectively. That's what decision intelligence is all about. It brings together diverse perspectives on decision-making, which makes all of us stronger together, and gives these perspectives a new voice that's free of the traditional constraints of their originating fields of study. If you're curious to learn more, most of my articles on medium.com have been written from a decision intelligence perspective. My guide to starting AI projects, called Getting Started with AI, Start Here, is probably the least subtle, so I'd recommend diving in there if you haven't already chosen your own adventure by following the links in the online version of this article. I'm Cassie Kozarkov, and this was Introduction to Decision Intelligence, read for you by the author. If you liked what you heard, please do share the podcast or the written version of this article with a friend who'd appreciate it. And of course, if you hated the article, go ahead and foist it on an enemy. (laughs) That way we all get what we want. Thanks so much for your support, and see you next time on the Decision Intelligence Podcast.